Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon, fellows. This is Mike Herring in Richmond, Virginia. And this afternoon, I have the pleasure of spending some time with no stranger to you all, John Kecker of Kecker and Van Ness. Hi, John. Hi, Michael. And it's, it's now Kecker, Van Ness, and Peters, Elliot Peters, a member of the college. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, John has been gracious enough to carve out some time from his busy day to indulge me with some questions. And John, I'll put you at ease. I'm going to deviate from the the traditional interview formula and actually vary pretty widely and cover things that are obvious and relevant to your practice, but also want to cover some broader context and background about you and some of the things you've done outside the courtroom, if that's okay. Of course. Well, let's start with the easiest of the softballs. Where's John Kecker come from? Tell us about little John (laughs) and where and how he grew up. I was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My mother had gone home to live with her parents while my father was in the Navy in 1944. And I lived in North Carolina, Maryland. During the Korean War, my father was called back into the Navy. So we lived, he was at New London. So we lived at Westerly, Rhode Island. We lived in Dayton when my brother was born, Dayton, Ohio. And then eventually settled down in suburban Maryland in Bethesda, and I went to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. Got it. Would you say you grew up in a, a Navy household? No, definitely not. My father was mad about getting called back. He enjoyed the Navy, but he was mad and thought the CIA had put him up to it to call him <laughs> back. He got a call from the CIA the next day saying, hey, we can get you out of this. Ah, got it. Well, now, so that's really interesting to me. I didn't anticipate that answer because if I've done my research at all well, my understanding is you attended Princeton on a ROTC scholarship. Is that right? That's correct. Navy ROTC scholarship. Were you not following in dad's footsteps? I wanted to be, what I remember about it is that I wanted to be independent. That only scholarship that didn't require means, you know, proof was the Navy ROTC scholarship. And Princeton University, where I wanted to go, was the most expensive college in America where tuition alone cost. $1,500, if you can imagine. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, in 1961, so how times have changed. Indeed, they have. I have a uh, high school senior applying to college, and the sticker shock is jaw-dropping, let me just tell you. Well, you don't have to tell me. I've got grandchildren, one of them at Princeton and one of them at Vassar, and I know how much it costs. Yes, indeed. All right, so when did you come out of Princeton? 65, Okay. 1965. Yeah, certainly a turbulent time, right? Not yet. Princeton is sort of the last, the northernmost, as my grandmother used to say, the northernmost of the southern schools. And it was a pretty sleepy place in 65 that things really got going as the Vietnam War picked up. Already it was big protests in California, but not so much on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. When I was wounded, I ended up back in Bethesda Naval Hospital, and I was the first college graduate to come from Vietnam to come back into that hospital. All the rest of the wounded were either black kids from downtown Washington or downtown Baltimore or white kids from West Virginia. The draft hadn't happened yet and the war hadn't affected all Americans the way it did later. Well, that's fascinating. So you did your training at Quantico and then you head overseas. 
where were you in country? And you'll have to forgive me. I'm a bit of a movie file, right? Vietnam and war movie file. And so I at least know that term in country. Right. <laughs> That's good. The saying is that wars are the way Americans learn geography. But anyway, I was wounded in the first Marine operation right next to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. But before that, we were in the middle part of Vietnam. But mostly I was fighting in I-Corps, which is the northern part of South Vietnam, where the Marines were. Got it. I imagine your time at Bethesda Naval made a real impression on you about the treatment of veterans. Is that fair to say? Yes, although I got wonderful treatment. I was operated on in Phu Bai in Vietnam the night I was wounded. I was operated a couple of days later in Da Nang. And then when I got back to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, I was operated on again. And they did so well with my arm. I had my elbow shot off that I was a specimen at the orthopedics doctors conference. They you know, stood up there. Here's a well-formed 23-year-old Marine who blah, blah, blah. You know, they paraded me in front of the doctors. Wow. Well, that's a far cry from how the VA is characterized these days. Well, yeah, I mean, the VA, there's a lot of good stuff that the VA does. I'm very involved with a group out here called Swords to Plowshares, was formed by a Vietnam veteran and helps homeless and drug addicted veterans try to get back their lives. And we work closely with the VA and the VA tries to do a lot of things. They also make a lot of mistakes, but all of medical care is like that. Yeah. All right. So you come back to the States, you enroll at Yale, you're wide-eyed, optimistic, ready to tackle the world, save us all. And you end up clerking for Chief Justice Earl Warren. How did that come about? He was retired. So it was kind of sad, actually. I loved him, but the job was sort of sad because Chief Justice Berger didn't let him do anything. He had announced his retirement in 1968 after Johnson had said he was going to leave office. And Warren was never willing to say that they made a deal, but I'm sure they did make a deal. And the deal was to appoint Abe Fortas to Chief Justice and to keep going the Warren court. And instead, Fortas got in trouble over the summer over some small thing and couldn't be confirmed as Chief Justice. And then the Republicans refused to have another vote on who's going to be the Chief Justice until the election. Nixon won the election and appointed Chief Justice Berger. And Berger hated Warren and Warren hated Berger. So Berger didn't let Warren do all the things that he was hoping to do, which would be involved with the administrative office and do environmental things and probably sit on some circuit cases. So he was pretty bored. In his, he was 80, but he was pretty bored. Yeah, I'm sure he was still pretty sharp though, right? He was very sharp, yeah, very sharp. He was writing his memoirs. He wrote a book about civil rights. One of my favorite memories was helping him. We were writing a book about the Bill of Rights, how important they are. And we got to the part in the Fifth Amendment about the grand jury, and we couldn't think of anything to say about how good it is. Because <laughs> it's not. It's prosecutor's tool. I've done a fair amount of criminal work in my past on both sides of the courtroom. And I note that you were a federal public defender in the Bay Area in the early 70s. Yes, from 71 to 73. It was when the public defender was just starting out here. Yeah. You know, when I read that, I had to pause because I was not aware that federal public defenders existed that early on. Well, they didn't. We were the first, I think, one in California. 
and the assistant federal public defenders were well paid. We got $11,000 a year. That's another thing that I look back on. We had a hell of a time because the prosecutors were still doing all kinds of small case, bank robbery cases, drug cases. And I tried about 30 cases in two years, some of them long, some of it mostly really short cases. You try a bank robbery case in two or three days. Sure. Sure. I was a state court prosecutor, both on the front line and then elected. But to your point, I mean, just scores of small cases over the course of a year. Yeah. And you just get to hone your craft, if you will, day in and day out. I consider it a real treat. So let me ask you this, though, right? Because I'm sure our audience, at least our audience outside of California, is dying to get a sense of what the Bay Area was like in the early 70s. It was wild. I mean, it was really wild. The zebra killers, there was the Zodiac murderer. I had these cases where a bunch of Berkeley students from Iran had assaulted the consular official who worked for the Iranian government. And so we had this great trial with all these revolutionary things. There was another, Vince Ramos. I represented a lot of black activists, later on represented Eldridge Cleaver after I was in private practice. So it was wild. The other good thing about this wasn't for the public defender, but for private practice, all these kids in the Bay Area were getting arrested for marijuana, middle class kids, and their parents could afford to pay. So it was a thriving place for young criminal defense lawyers representing kids and also draft resistors. Draft resistors and dope smokers were the ones who could pay for your services. Mm -hmm. Now, the Nixon administration. I guess Nixon came into office in 69, January 69. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. So had the administration begun the war on drugs by the time you touched down in the Bay Area? No, although I think we I can't remember when mandatory minimums came in, but it was right around that time. Yeah. We began to get mandatory minimums of five years for certain offenses and 15 years for other offenses. That had a big effect on trials because it gave the prosecutors more power to plea bargain and make a deal. We used to think of, you know, you had a right to a trial and the judge, sometimes you try cases just to let the judge know this wasn't such a big deal. It's like a long pre-sentence report. Yeah. Probation. And then they began first the mandatory minimums and then later the guidelines made that impossible. Right. I've heard colleagues, some of whom are fellows, remark that they've stopped federal criminal practice because the landscape in their minds is so skewed that the prosecutors have all the leverage. They find it to be an utterly unfulfilling experience to practice in federal court. What are your thoughts about that? Most of the people who practice in federal court out here make deals. I don't like deal making. Uh, I see why it's important for your clients sometimes, but it's not what I practice law for. I like trying cases, and I think it's become a big problem. I wrote a, an article called Why Trials Matter. It's been published in a couple of places. And the idea that 97% of federal criminal prosecutions end up in guilty pleas or deals is pretty appalling. And then of the ones that do go to trial, more than half of them are convicted because the presumption of innocence has become a joke. I mean, you tell jurors. Now, these people are presumed innocent. They're going, yeah, right. Why are they here? Why am I sitting in federal court with prosecutors saying that they're guilty of a crime if I'm supposed to presume them innocent? It's a bunch of nonsense. Do you have a sense that things are all that different in state court? Yes. In California, there are. 
we have great state offices and they try a lot of cases and a lot of them are, you know, there's misdemeanor cases and lesser felonies. Again, in state court, you have the three strikes rule, which is being vitiated to some extent, but trying cases in state court is much more active. Mm -hmm. You know, Richmond is regarded as a defendant friendly jurisdiction and prosecutors kind of regard it as hostile territory. I'd love to spend a little more time on your thoughts about how the public regards the accused in state court versus federal court. And I, I imagine that in California as well, defendants are afforded a different degree of reasonable doubt and presumption of innocence. Or what do you think? I think it depends on the crime. I think people have learned to be very suspicious of eyewitness identification, and jurors have, and that didn't used to exist, but now people recognize how fraught that is. Second, the big thing is that the prosecutors don't have as much time and investigative power to make the case, so they can be taken by surprise. There could be witnesses that haven't been interviewed. That happens in state court a lot, and it doesn't happen in federal court because the procedure has become so ridiculous. I mean, prosecutors spend five years preparing their case, turning over every rock and getting every document, getting every email. That's a big difference, the level of preparation by the prosecutors. Mm -hmm. I read, John, that you'd commented to someone that one of the casualties of the evolution of the practice, maybe the technological evolution of the practice has been the time to just sit and think. If you recall saying something to that effect, what did you mean? Well, I've considered that for both criminal and civil cases. I spend a lot of time sort of cogitating and thinking about where things can go. And I like in criminal cases, I like, or all cases, I like to kind of walk around, have a couple of drinks maybe and go take a walk and think, now, if I just could say anything to the jury, what would I like to say? And then work backwards after you've carved out all the things that you can't say. Mm -hmm. But I think focusing on what you're doing as opposed to just going through all the process is pretty important. Yeah. Do you think clients have come to expect quicker turnarounds such that we've become more reactive, maybe even more defensive in our practices? I don't know. I mean, it depends. Corporations have all these young non-trial lawyers sort of supervising the litigation, which I find somewhat absurd. And in criminal cases, you usually have even the well-educated defendants are just in shell shock and have trouble thinking. I think that the immediate reaction time has come with all this horrible email and, and other ability to do things in a minute. I mean, in the good old days, you used to write a letter to the other side. The other side would get it a couple of days later. They'd write you back. Things were a lot slower. Now, if you don't email within an hour, you're being uncivil. One of the things that surprised me a bit in my transition from a primarily criminal practice, albeit criminal slash political, if not policy, to an almost purely civil practice is the extent to which everything is fair game. And what I mean is, you know, there was a time when you could have a communication or conversation with opposing counsel and be pretty confident that it wasn't going to show up in a pleading. And my sense is these days, you better be willing to acknowledge or own whatever you say and how you say it, because it's all fair game. Have you had any experience with that? 
Sure, of course. I mean, yes. And it's a function of litigating against people who you've never litigated against before and will probably never be against again and never developing a relationship except in that case. If you had to, and this was true in the public defender's office, if you had to go back to that opponent in multiple cases, you would work out rules of civility for your own self-protection. But I agree with you. I mean, the idea that a casual conversation between opponents would end up in a declaration or somebody would take advantage of that is one of the worst things about the change in practice. I can't stand it. Yeah. So when you invariably are called upon to speak to younger lawyers, how do you sort of reminisce on the old days or better yet, prepare them for the reality of today's practice and not come across disillusioned or bitter? Well, I'm not bitter. And I try not to reminisce on the old days because they look at you like, uh, you old man, you're nuts. So I try not to do that, although I do tell my stories. I have a lot of great stories from 50 years of trying cases. I'm not bitter. I just feel sorry for them that they can't get more trials. They're so happy when you get into trial and they get their witnesses and we go through a mock trial and we do all this. They just think it's wonderful, but it doesn't happen as much as it ought to. Yeah. I've taught trial ad at a nearby law school for a while as an adjunct and participate in some models here at the firm just to give younger and mid-level associates a sense of what trial work is like. But it's, it's really hard to simulate it. There's such a pressure to be productive that carving out a day or two to simulate some aspects of a trial can be tough. And it can be even harder to capture the realism or the reality of trial work in a module, if that makes sense. It makes sense. And it's a function of law changing from profession to business. And as you say, the pressure to be productive is great. And it's not better or worse. It's just lawyers before, I think, were more relaxed. When the American lawyer first started, there were all these articles by white shoe lawyers and big New York firms about how the nature of the business has changed. It changed in some ways for the better. It used to be just white men appearing before white judges. And now it's not. And it's changed in some ways for the worse, like in some of the ways we're talking about, less trials and less opportunity to develop your skills. I think most folks would agree that the diversification of the practice has been a good thing. Diversity in firms and agencies and courtrooms is a good thing. I've wondered, though, what substantively is the significance of diversity in the practice, right? If you had to give, you know, make a quick elevator pitch on the importance of diversity, what would it be? Well, there's two things for me. I mean, the first obvious thing when you go to trial is that the jurors are going to be a mixed and diverse group, and your trial team ought to be a mixed and diverse group too, so that people can relate. The second advantage, I think, great advantage of diversity is in the pro bono area. People in our firm care about all kinds of things. You know, we had young people here who found out about a guy that was let out of jail and that was going to be sent back to China because he didn't have immigration status. And they worked on that. Anyway, the issues that people care about are a function of the diversity in the firm, I think, and helps the diversity of the pro bono practice, which I think is great. Yeah. I think our listeners would skewer me if I didn't ask you a few questions about some of the more high profile matters you've been engaged on. And, and I know you've talked about them at length. So just indulge me a few questions on these. But how does a guy go from being a federal public defender to prosecuting Oliver North? 
Well, I mean, I didn't go directly. I had been in practice since 73. So when did I go? I went in 86 to Washington. So I've been in private practice doing cases as a defense lawyer. And basically, it was what Oliver North and the White House did in Nicaragua and supporting against the will of Congress a guerrilla force, the Contras, just as a Marine, outraged me. I mean, I was just like, what are you doing? This is not the way you use the military. It's not the way you use executive power. And so I was very interested in getting involved in that. I was very fortunate to have two great friends, one of whom, I think maybe both of whom were presidents of the American College of Trial Lawyers. Charlie Renfrew had been a judge and a deputy attorney general, and Bob Raven, who built up the Morrison firm, were both people that would support me and knew Lawrence Walsh, the independent counsel. So they recommended me and he hired me. And those FBI agents that were working with him just couldn't believe that he had hired a defense lawyer from San Francisco, which right. had a real reputation at that point. But we all got along and we investigated and worked on things for a couple of years. And then eventually there was an indictment. I was going back and forth trying cases out here. I had one five-month trial during that period. But eventually he needed somebody to be the lead lawyer in the Oliver North case, and he picked me. Now, did you seek that out or did the role find you? I'm genuinely curious. Judge Walsh was by now 76, I think. He had a distinguished career at Davis Polk. He was now practicing in Oklahoma City at a firm there. And he uh, wanted to try the case. We we're going to try it together. And it became pretty clear. I'd never been second chair to anybody. And it became pretty clear as we were working along that our tactical senses are just not the same. So I quit very nicely. And I explained to him Napoleon's adage about one bad general is better than two good generals. You need somebody to be in charge. And if it wasn't me, I didn't want to do it. So I came back to San Francisco and a couple of days later, after thinking about it, Judge Walsh very graciously called and said, no, come back. You can do it. I think I shouldn't do it. In retrospect, are you glad you did? Oh, yeah, very much. It's a highlight of my career. I mean, it's also scary and I've never really been through anything like that. How did that impact your, I mean, I imagine it really enabled the growth of your practice, but how did it impact you personally? I mean, did you suffer any personal blowback? Were you ostracized? How did your peer community react to it? I wasn't ostracized. I think there were certainly a lot of people who thought that North was a hero and weren't you know, very happy about anybody prosecuting him. But most of the people in the Bay Area thought it was great. And I got great publicity here, at least. And one of the great, I walked into court one day and it turned out the retired Marine general, Lieutenant General, who was the head of the North Defense Fund and was raising money to give to Brendan Sullivan. Brendan took the case kind of pro bono and ended up doing fine because North raised so much money. But the head of the defense fund turned out to be my battalion commander oh, in wow. Vietnam. And so I saw him. We had a cordial. He was you know, nice about it. It was fine. So at this point... Do you have a family? Uh, my wife died a year ago, January 11. But yes, I've had a family. We got married right at the end of college in 1965 on September 11th, as a matter of fact, before September 11 was famous. Got it. John, I just broke one of the cardinal rules. I asked a grossly ambiguous question. I should have said, at the time of the Oliver North engagement, did you have a family? And really what I want to know is, how did you balance? How did you manage the toll or separate 
John Kecker, prosecutor of Oliver North and other high-profile matters from John Kecker, husband and perhaps father? Well, not very well. My wife was furious. My oldest son was in college, so he was at Princeton. He came down a couple of times to watch the trial. And my youngest son was a senior in high school and was, you know, kind of battle, like, what happened here? My brother went away and, and my father went away. And it was hard. It was very tough. I tried to come back as much as I could. And Tina tried to go out to Washington where we'd grown up. She had family there. But it was it was tough. It was bad. You know, it's not the greatest thing for your marriage. What words of wisdom do you share with colleagues, younger colleagues today about managing the demands of practice with the needs of of those dear to you at home? I don't have any words of wisdom. I just I think it's terribly important that the best thing that you can do in your life is to have kids. And if you're not involved with your kids' lives, then you're missing one of the great joys of life. And the time you're really going to be involved with your kids is when they're at home, they're young before they go to college. Mm -hmm. After that, they get much more independent. So, you know, it's tough. But Tina and I were pretty connected. We'd been dating since senior year of high school and we dated all through college. And so by the time she died, we'd been married 55 years. Congratulations. And forgive me if I missed this, but was Tina at Princeton with you? No, Princeton was all men, or all boys. I can't call them men. We were all boys. <laughs> it was an all-male school, and Tina went to the University of Maryland, but she spent a lot of time at Princeton. You know, So yes, she was at Princeton with me, but she didn't go to Princeton. <laughs> she was unofficially at Princeton, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, so last question on your tour in D.C. Did all that time around policy makers and office holders not inspire you to public office? Oh, I had gotten that out of my system. I was a you know John F. Kennedy acolyte when I was in high school. And then in 1977, when I was 33, so this is years before the Washington thing, I ran for supervisor in San Francisco. And it was the first time they had district elections. And the other people that were running was my good friend, Harvey Milk. He sort of taught me how to campaign. And uh, Diane Feinstein was running in District 2. I was in District 3. And Dan White, who ended up murdering Moscone and Harvey Milk, was running in District 8. So we were all campaigning. And when I finished that process, thank God I lost by about a thousand votes. I had realized that I just was not for politics. I didn't like being nice to people. I didn't like having to watch your tongue. I didn't like much about it. And that cured me. I was never tempted to be in elective politics again. I still like to do public service and so on, but not elective politics. That's quite a roster of personalities. Harvey Milk and Diane Weinstein. Yeah. I mean, man. Yep. Those are the old days. That was before Diane was mayor. Right after I ran in 77, 78 was when all these horrible things happened in San Francisco. This guy, Dan White, killed the mayor and killed Harvey Milk in City Hall. Then right after that, Jim Jones with the People's Temple all committed suicide in Guyana. It was a crazy time in San Francisco. So when you talk to to anybody, but particularly students, and they ask you about your career and the trajectory of your career, how do you distinguish yourself as a trial lawyer from John Kecker, the litigator? And so really at the heart of that is, what's the difference between litigation and trial work in your mind? Litigation is the whole process, writing requests for admissions, interrogatories, meet and confer, all that stuff, which I hate. 
the only part of being a lawyer that I really like is preparing for trial and trial. Mm -hmm. But something tells me you don't shortcut on preparation. No, 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 no. Preparing for trial is, I mean, preparing is the key to being an effective trial lawyer. There's no question. We had the example of F. Lee Bailey come out here to try the Patty Hearst case, which he was a famous lawyer, big shot, and he just screwed it up royally because he didn't prepare and he didn't work very hard. If you don't prepare and you don't work hard, you're not good, period. Yeah. So do you think that a real high level of competence as a litigator or as a trial lawyer can give one a false sense of confidence that he or she is competent in the other? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. And in big firms, you see all the time the need for a senior lawyer who has been hired by the client and really hadn't tried cases much in years is examining people based on scripts written for him by younger lawyers. I mean, you know, just standing up there and reading questions. It's a joke. I mean, it must make you cringe, right? Bad lawyering makes me cringe. One of the things I do tell lawyers is the thing to do if you have any kind of nervousness or worried about your competence, just go down, especially in state court, go down and sit in the back of the courtroom and watch lawyers, and then you'll get confidence because most of them are so bad. How do you allow for less than ideal judging? Well, I mean, most of the judges are less than ideal, and you've got to figure out, they're your audience, and you've got to figure out how they work. And so you try to get as much intelligence on them as possible. Certainly you learn by, in a big litigation or a big civil case, where you're before them over and over again, you begin to learn them and they learn something about you. But they're the judge and they're the ones you have to persuade. And so you can't just sit around complaining about how unprepared they are, or how they won't pay attention or whatever. You got to figure out a way to work with them. And I imagine you have the same sense with jurors, right? I mean, you get a read on a jury and you pick the jury and it's not the jury you'd hope for, but you got to roll with it, right? You got to roll with it. But that jurors are much tougher because you don't know what they're thinking. I've had amazing experiences with jurors where after the trial was over and after I talked to them, I realized that they just weren't who I thought they were as they sit there quietly. I really love judges who will permit jurors to ask questions so that you can get some kind of insight into what they're thinking or what they're paying attention to. So how many times in trial, John, or how often are your instincts correct about what a jury's going to do? I think pretty often. I'm not surprised very much. One of the worst things in the world is losing a case that you should have won. And that can happen you know, a mistrial or something can happen with one or two bad jurors. But it's not so much the jury, you watch the jury, you watch the body language, you watch this and that, but it's more kind of giving them the credit for being reasonable people and trying to do their job and then think about how the case has gone in and what would a reasonable person who wants to be responsible, what would they do with the evidence as it's come in? And you know whether or not it's come in well or it's come in bad or, you know, you know the tough spots. Mm -hmm. So when you're in the moment, when you're in trial, how do you avoid tunnel vision? In other words, how do you maintain your self-scrutiny? That is the ability to evaluate what you're doing and to gauge how it's being received by the jury. It almost sort of requires you to step outside of yourself and watch the trial, right? I think that's right. Exactly. 
and not listen to other people who said you did great or listen to the press who said you did bad or whatever. I mean, not be trying the case to somebody other than the jury. Yeah. And to keep up with what's happening, you've almost got to be of two minds. You've got to be the John who's at the podium or in the well of the courtroom engaging with the witness, the judge and the jury, and then the John who's observing it all and keeping track of how things are going for better or for worse. And that's what makes it interesting and such a challenge. I think it's wonderful. And you've got to keep control of your fear and anxiety. Fear just dominates the courtroom. Jury's afraid of screwing up and the judge is afraid that he'll look bad in front of everybody and the prosecutor's afraid of losing and the defense lawyer's afraid of not doing a good job and God knows the defendant is terrified. And you got to control that fear to be able to do your best. Is it fair to say that even you experience fear sometimes? Oh, sure. I mean, of course, you know, you're with somebody and it really makes your client, it's going to make a lot of difference to them. It's going to make a lot of difference to you and your colleagues about how you do in this case. You can't help but be anxious. And I guess you can call it fearful, but yeah, yeah, I mean, sure. And if you're not, you're probably not paying attention. Sure. One of the things I've struggled with over the years is adrenaline. It just starts flowing. And if I'm not careful, it can run away from me. And years ago, I used to take Benadryl just to slow myself down at trial so that I wouldn't get so amped up and charged up in trial. Have you ever dealt with that? How how do you manage the adrenaline? I'm not, I haven't thought about it that way. (laughs) And I certainly have not taken Benadryl. I think, (laughs) I think that's a riot. That's good. But yeah, I mean, you can't get overly amped. The way you present is going to be a tremendous influence on the jury. If you look crestfallen and beaten up, they're going to think that it's really scored. If you look too amped up and excited, they're going to think things about that. I've seen people, I've had it more than once, it's usually senior lawyers, haven't cross-examined anybody in a long time, and they've forgotten that the jury doesn't hate the person or doesn't, and all of a sudden they get up and begin to attack the witness. And the jury's looking at them like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And it's because they're too amped up. What's your thought on that? Do you find that you get more out of a witness sort of approaching from an oblique as opposed to head on, that less confrontation is generally more fruitful? What do you think? No, I think it depends on the witness. If it's, you know, a little old lady, if you start attacking a little old lady, that's a joke. I mean, you know, you're a fool. If you uh, have some snarly cooperating witness who's trying to dump everything on your client, and you start beating him up, people will understand that if he deserves to be beat up. I mean, you just got to beat him up, though. You got to be effective. You can't just snarl at him. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends completely on the witness. I want to stay on this theme about the dynamic of trial. How important is it for the focus to be on the lawyer at trial? In other words, have you found over time that it is inured to your client's benefit or detriment for you to draw attention to yourself? I think it's pretty important to draw attention to yourself in the sense that you are the representative of your client to the extent that you're trying to persuade people to vote for your client's position, then how they feel about you is important. And then that's the other part is that I like to, if I can, be the focus of everything, do the opening, do the critical cross-examinations, critical direct examinations and the closing because you are representing the case you are the case and so failure is very very personal when a jury comes back and votes against you 
I take it personally. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. If you had the chance to do it all over again, would you do it all the same way? No, I don't have any regrets. I've been very lucky and I've been very fortunate and I'm surrounded by really good people, which has made my life as a lawyer a lot easier. And I'm just grateful. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, John, I appreciate this. I know you're busy and this was a lot of fun. I could spend another hour on here with you easily. Thanks, Mike. That was great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.